The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. On today's program, we'll speak with Yano Sitos, president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as GXS. V. Gold Source has begun pouring gold in Guyana. I'll also chat with mercenary geologist Mickey Fulp about politics and the resource sector. Dr. Brad Thompson of Oncolytics Biotech trading as ONCYF on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX discusses cancer-fighting solutions. And we'll finish the program with a discussion with Los Angeles-based psychologist and financial planner Dr. Stephen Goldstein about both of his professions and how they might relate to one another. Join me now for a conversation with the president of Gold Source Mines, Giannis Sitos. Gold Source trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.B. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company about to produce gold in English-speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean in South America. I recently attended the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada in Toronto, the largest mining conference of its kind in the world. I had an opportunity to sit down once again in person with Jan. Is it true that you're pouring gold? We concluded construction of the mine at the end of January, and we announced that we have now entered into the phase of commissioning, and about 48 hours ago we did the first gold pour. So obviously we haven't reached commercial production yet. We expect this to be reached in the second quarter of this year, but everything is looking good. We are pouring more gold this week. There are no major upsets on any part of the engineering circuit. Full force is working the full shift there. It's about 10 hours shift a day. Uh, we're looking good. How much gold do you expect to pour this year? I mean, it's difficult to do the estimation yet because we have to do all the mass balances and so on in the coming couple of months, completing the, the commissioning. But I would say something between five and 10,000 ounces. And this happened very, very quickly, did it not? Absolutely. And the biggest thing that I would like to mention here, Alice, is that we deliver this construction of the mine at about 18% savings to what we put up front it will cost us. So this is a very rare case in the mining world that the company commits some capital expenditure and delivers the project at 18% under budget to the market. So this is incredible. Ultimately, what do you expect the price of gold per ounce to be with regard to gold source? The cost, yeah, yeah. Because as I said, the only thing I don't control is the price of gold. All the other parameters are under my control. So therefore, the operating costs are very good. We already experiencing that through because we have the full force working there. We still believe we would deliver cash cost Guyana under $500 and uh, all in sustaining capital with Canadian overheads and everything between $600 and $700. Perhaps. Is that priced out during the next couple of years? Do you see production costs coming up at all, even as the price of gold increases? No, the opposite, actually. The more ounces you keep as you ramp up the project, and uh, you know, if you remember, this is a stage development approach. So we start with small production, but we will every kind of year we will almost go 68 uh, percent and. 
more. So as you increase your denominator of the amount of ounces, your capital expenditure at this stage is the same. Maybe we bring a little bit of more mining equipment, but it will all be great, and the average cost of per ounce will drop as we go. So, Any idea of the potential mine life, and what are you doing to expand the resource? It's all about expansion and free cash flow. This is a story that uh, you want to create this profit margin on per ounce basis to redeploy it in order to do expansions, both in the capacity side, in other words, put more throughput from 1,000 tons a day to 4,000 tons a day, and also improve recoveries from a pure gravity plant to introduction of a leach reactor, and therefore 60% recoveries to 90s, a kind of 92% recovery. Now, this is a nice marriage, this company, between you and the board of directors who are also involved with your sister company, Silvercrest Metals. You have the property. They have the management team. Give us a little bit of backstory. If you try to do M&A, a successful M&A is one plus one makes better than the sum of the two, okay? So the Silvercrest Mines team is an exceptional team, but most importantly, Ellis, they have been used to develop projects through this approach. Eric Fear is the number one name out there our chief operating officer and the president of Silvercrest Metals now, so in what we call phase development approach for a project. So therefore, it was not only about the management, it was also about the plan to move Eagle Mountain from an exploration project into a fully-blown mine-producing operation, okay? So that's the big thing. So it took a lot of pain over the last two and a half years for lots of people, but in our case, the marriage worked very well, and we complemented one team and the other team, and now we are up and running and I want to give a lot of credits not only to the management because the most important people are really the operating people on the ground and we do carry an incredible team in Guyana. I'm talking now about the people, the simple workers, the fabricators, the excavator operators, the people who work day to day. I'm spending significant time of my time as a president in Guyana almost every month I'm there and I see what I'm saying here. It's not uh, a praise. So I want to congratulate all of these people and without the dedication of this team and also the support from the government of Guyana and a lot of other people on the local stakeholding environment, the local communities and so on, we wouldn't be in this position. Yana Sitos, thank you so much for the update. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation to talk again. I've been speaking with Giannis Sitos, the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. I'm Ellis Martin. I recently attended the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada in Toronto, the largest mining conference of its kind in the world. I had an opportunity to sit down with a mercenary geologist, Mickey Fault. We discussed current market trends and a rare topic on this program, politics. Mickey, welcome back to the program. Every time I turn on the TV, Mickey, it's it's politics, USA, one-on-one, whatever you can stomach, whether you like it or not. We've got one of the most interesting presidential races I've ever seen in my entire lifetime. We have Donald Trump. Where did he come from? Well, we know where he came from. He came from reality TV and hotels and casinos and real estate and New York, which a lot of people don't like. And we have the installed queen of everything, Hillary Clinton, who demands that she be elected president. She's been on a 50-year plan to get there. Yeah, so we've got Trump to Trump versus Hillary, and it's arguably the different political season than I have ever witnessed. I actually have watched portions of Republican debates, and I can't tell you if ever I have done that. 
since maybe when I was a little kid and my parents are watching Nixon versus Kennedy in 1960 or something. You know, to put it in about six or seven string of words, I'm a good old boy hillbilly American libertarian redneck, and I want to emphasize libertarian there. So neither the Republicans or the Democrats generally capture my fancy, if you will. That said, it's something I've never seen. You can tell that I don't have not a lot of love there for either candidate. I can tell you that Trump is a capitalist. He's running on a populist slash nationalist sort of philosophy. I think he's bringing in a lot of disenfranchised people who generally don't vote. And if he were to win the election, he's going to have to capture all that crowd. You know, neither of these people or either one of them is popular amongst the majority of Americans, but they each probably have hardcore followers of 30 to 40 percent of the American populace. On the Democrat side, you know, there are people that are Clinton followers and they will always vote and they love Hillary and no matter what she does, even if she gets indicted with this email debacle that's going on, whatever that amounts to. And Indictments don't hurt the Clintons at all, do they? No, they, they haven't so far. So with Trump, I think he's bringing people in that generally don't vote. I don't think that's going to be the case with Billary. That said, I would like to just address what I think will go on. Which of those two people would be best for the extractive industries, the mining business and oil gas business? And, you know, I would go back to the fact that Trump's a capitalist and he does not like regulations. He's calling for the dissolution of the EPA and states' rights sort of thing. Let's throw it back to the states. That's going to play very well with a significant part of the American voters. Hillary, who has generally always been perceived as, and the Clintons both, as somewhat centrist, but Hillary has moved further and further left because coattailing Obama. If she maintains that, and who knows if she will, they both seem to change positions at will, and they're not really held responsible for that. But I think unequivocally a Trump presidency would be better for the extractive industries, resources in the United States versus Hillary Clinton. And we've seen significant rises in all commodities. Even today, uh, copper closed at 228, gold at 1270, oil was up $4. WTI closed at just a little under $38. I heard a rumor on the floor here that iron ore, which is not a world-traded commodity on an open market, was up $20 a ton. That's amazing. So we've seen this kind of extreme bump in commodities. It could have corrected down a bit. You know, you see these rises day after day after day. They generally will take a step back or two before it would continue to go on. I think it must be commodity-wise driven by hedge funds going back into the commodities business. They've seen the bottom and now they say, okay, this is the next thing we're going to do. So if that's the case, that's extremely bullish. There's no doubt there have been short squeezes because of these run-ups. You know, Goldman Sachs came out, I think, around two or three weeks ago with a very bearish projection on gold. I think it's unequivocally obvious that they had a big short position in gold. The shorts have gotten squeezed here. So that is part of the rise of world-traded exchange commodities, copper, oil, gold. The mood here at PDAC is buoyant. We haven't seen this for a while. You know, we don't know if it's going to continue, but at least 
we see some hope on the horizon, maybe some blue sky on the horizon. We haven't seen that for a very long time, Ellen. We were starting to smell this a little bit in January, and I got a whiff of it at the Silver Summit in San Francisco back in November, and I started stacking physical silver just because I thought we were at the bottom. But what's interesting is not only precious metals, but base metals and copper and, and like you mentioned, iron ore are on the rise. Does that bode wealth for the industrial sector as a whole, or is it just all speculation right now after the market got completely slapped down over the last five years? Well, I think it's mainly speculation right now, and there's nothing wrong with that because speculators are generally contrarians. and They try to create trends, and they've seen these what they consider bottoming in prices, and here we go again. Hopefully, we'll see if it has any legs, and no one's going to be able to predict that. But I can tell you that copper demand remains strong, and, you know, it's uh, down a bit last year, but we still used a significant more amount of copper more than we used the year before. We'll use more copper this year. When you get prices so low, the cure for low prices is low prices. We still live in a capitalistic economy, and we certainly hope that's going to continue in North America for quite some time. What I've never seen before is the disparity between commodity prices and these public companies that are that are here at the show, the stocks are tremendously low. It would seem like this is one of the best opportunities I've ever seen in my life, and maybe you've ever seen in your life, for potential upside. And the caliber of company is better than it was five or six years ago. Well, absolutely. We've eliminated a lot of people that didn't belong in this industry. Probably there's half the companies on the floor here. It's notably shrank from even three or four years ago. So we're getting leaner and meaner. We hope that continues. There were too many companies. There's still way too many companies. We're still, I don't know, I haven't seen uh, Tony Simon's latest numbers, but he was convinced that the number of zombie miners, which is right around 600 last year, going to significantly increase this year. We need to get rid of those guys. But yeah, the business is being forced to downsize and that was needed. And so hopefully we'll end up with stronger companies. Yeah, good time to buy pick good companies. You've got to do lots of due diligence to make sure you don't pick something that's not going to be able to succeed, even with a a rising commodity prices. Should we be following these hedge funds? Well, if you want to buy physical metal and speculate in futures and options, but that's not my ballgame. But, you know, uh, precious metals, am I buying precious metals this week? Absolutely not. I haven't bought precious metals since around the the end of last year. And I was buying... Platinum, not gold, because it still remains undervalued with respect to gold. So I don't generally buy in a rising market. Maybe if you don't own any gold and you think it's going higher, yeah, but you know, I would have much rather have bought in the last couple of months than right now because could have gotten gold, what is it, twelve seventy today. It was ten forty six if memory serves at the end of the year. What are you buying now and feel free to be specific if you'd like? Well, I'm basically selling some stocks and taking profits and moving into things I've got my eye on. And so I'm accumulating positions in some stocks. I've done a couple of private placements over the last month. I hadn't done that in quite a while. I'd just as soon not come out with what I'm doing right now. Suffice it to say that I'm putting money into the market. Not a significant amount of money. I'm very cautious right now. I wish I had some more free cash to do this. All right, the suspense is building here. You know that, right? We're unintentionally teasing our audience. How do we find out more about what you're doing and 
what you follow and when you're going to throw the switch publicly. Mercenarygeologist.com is the website. We have about 6,300 subscribers now. At Mercenary Geo is the Twitter feed, 53,300 followers. And this interview, as all my interviews, 24-7, streaming audio, mercenarygeologist.fm. Mickey, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thanks a lot, Alice. Always. I've been chatting with the mercenary geologist, Mickey Fulp. His website is mercenarygeologist.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brant Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancer. Cancer sort of taken center stage in our discussion as far as the culture and society right now with the loss recently of two cultural icons such as David Bowie and Alan Rickman. And why do we have this disease? Cancer really is a disease of aging. Your immune system when you're a child and to early adulthood is really good and it gets rid of things that don't belong. So if you get an infection, it takes care of that. If you get something that doesn't belong like a cancer, the body will recognize that and get rid of it. Everybody who's listening to this has had a cancer cancer in their life. But whether you get the disease cancer is a very different story. So as you get older, your immune system starts to die off and there's no other way of putting it. And so when you're my age and your age, you know, we probably have half or less of the immune system that we had. And once it drops below a certain threshold, and nobody really knows what that threshold is, people start getting cancer as a disease. And so it's really mostly, I mean, you get it when you're younger for other reasons, but mostly a disease of aging. And as our population ages, you would just expect to see what is exactly happening, which is more more people are getting cancer or their relatives are getting cancer, their friends are getting cancer, their acquaintances are getting cancer. I know the person they meet in the store down the corner of the street is getting cancer. It's an epidemic, but it's the result largely of aging. Now, in younger populations, we're actually starting to see an increase of certain cancers as well. And people are starting to think that's our lifestyle, you know, stress-related and that. I mean, a couple of really bad sleeps in a row actually seriously suppress your immune system. It doesn't take much to take the edge off your immune system. I mean, we're making great progress in a number of areas. I mean, the childhood leukemias, which a generation ago were absolute killers, are almost kind of like huh? leukemia, and we took care of it. Things like cervical cancer. I mean, we can prevent cervical cancer from occurring in most cases just by vaccinating children. I mean, there's been some great advances. We're fighting against the increased prevalence and incidents happening out there. What is your company doing to fight cancer? I know you've had a lot of success. You've treated over 1,100 people across North America. How does this company stand out from everyone else who has a cancer story right now? Our agent really does two things. The first thing it does is focuses on reducing the tumor burden in the patient. And that's based on the genetics of the tumors. I guess fortunately for us and unfortunately for people getting cancer, a lot of the causes of cancer, which are genetic in the end, are really exposed 
exploited by our agent, which is a live agent. It's a virus called the Rio virus, and its trademark name is Reolysin. And Reolysin, as its first activity, it will infect the tumor, and if the genetics are right, will kill that tumor. And so it's just a direct tumor-reducing burden thing. And the interesting part on that is, and that's why this is kind of unique, is, is that as patients fail therapy, like so if your first line, which is the first time you're treated, or second line, you're treated for the second time, the more times you fail therapy, that actually enriches for those mutations, those genetic changes. And so paradoxically, real license seems to reduce tumor better in patients that are later on in the process, which is backwards to pretty much everything. Normally, the more times the tumor is being treated, the less likely it is you'll get a response. All indications so far is that real license does the opposite. So you're more likely to have a, a patient who's failed everything get a response than you are on a first-time treatment, which is very unique and very helpful for those patients. The second thing that real license does is it interacts with the immune system. I mean, that's the new wave in oncology today is to harness the immune system to do what it normally does most of the time, which is get rid of cancer. And so you take that tenth of a percent of patients or people in those cases because they're not patients yet that you know normally their immune system takes care of it, but that tenth of a percent of the time it doesn't and that's why you get cancer. The real license actually works in concert with the immune system and with all these new drugs that's coming out that are called checkpoint inhibitors. It works with those agents and it works with the immune system to actually enhance the immune system's ability to deal with patients. Now, we actually have started two clinical studies now with two different agents. One is looking at pediatric glioma patients, kids, kids with brain cancer. We're actually directly enhancing the immune system with an agent called GMCSF, which has been used for many years, GMCSF and Realicin together. And we've been treating patients since the fall at the Mayo Clinic with that. And we've just started enrolling patients with another combination, but this case is Realicin with a checkpoint inhibitor, and that's in pancreatic cancer patients. And so we're doing two different things with the immune system. That's really kind of the second thing that real license does, but that makes it very unique. The fact that patients that are further along seem to do better with Rio than earlier patients. Also, this immune harnessing thing is quite unique. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Dr. Stephen Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein is a Los Angeles-based psychologist who's held positions in clinical psychology and management at a number of mental health clinics, including D.D. Hearst Community Mental Health Center and Kaiser Permanente. He's also taught at Cal State Northridge, and Dr. Goldstein is at a private practice since 1997. Additionally, he's an investor and a trader, managing family and friends portfolios, having formed Goldstein Advisors, LLC. He's a licensed financial planner, advising high net worth clients' portfolios for an annual fee of 1% of the client's assets under management. There are no additional fees. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report is unpaid and not a solicitation for business, reflecting only my opinion and that of Dr. Goldstein. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you. There's two careers that define you right now, basically. You are a psychologist working here in Los Angeles, and you also are a money manager of sorts. Portfolio manager, yes. You pretty much choose the way you like to live. You keep your own hours. You, you do what you like. One of the reasons we're here today is, is to discuss a pattern of success that defines a lifestyle that suits us individually. And of course, as an individual, there's no set template. But as a psychologist, I am sure that you see certain templates that work for each individual. Basically, there's many people in our age category, and let's just say that we're 50, 60 plus, that are successful <laughs> yeah, and that are happy. And there are many that are not and that are looking for a lifestyle change. This is something you deal with on a regular basis, correct? Yes. Well, let's talk about success 
and let's talk about the road to it for those who are in our age category. How do you transition from a bit of despair and anxiety to a life of happiness at our age? At this age? Yes. I think it starts with selecting the right parents before you're born and getting a wonderful parenting from them. Ideally, you are getting socialized well before three. And and I think by 12, you should be thinking, a 12-year-old should have some thoughts, however imaginative, about what they would like to do when they become an adult what they want to do, how they want to make money. And they should be educated about money and what it takes to prosper and live and support a family and a girlfriend and children. And at 20-ish, one should clearly be making that choice, not just imagining. And it should be well-researched. If those things have not been done well, or at least partially well, you don't have a, a, a great likelihood of tremendous freedom and success at our age. On the other hand, this country is good, is great in the sense that there are many and often varied and unconventional paths to success, so that one often does get second chances and so forth. I think if I had a bumper sticker, and I do, that I often quote to young and people of euphemistically said our age, and I think it applies to all of the sort of eight stages of development, is know yourself and then do a lot of it. I'm not a big believer in quote, finding your passion, but I am a big believer in knowing yourself and then doing a lot of that. Do what you're good at. You're just not going to do well in life if you're not doing what you're good at. To now come around the barn to your question about, it used to be considered old age, but now we find at 50 and 60 that people are quite capable due to medicine and the internet and economic opportunities. People are quite capable and have the options now of starting second careers. That wasn't true for my grandfather's age. The other thing is that with the internet, and as we were talking earlier, with Amazon willing to deliver all of our purchases to our door, and with a very mobile country, we are very capable at our age of downsizing and making a decision that we want to revise our former financial goals. We are capable of deciding, you know, I can continue on working 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week at this high-stress job and earning, getting more and more money. Or I can explain to my wife that I don't want to die in the saddle. I've earned a lot of money, I've done well, and I'd like to now spend my life doing something creative. The family, the mom, and the, sometimes and the children will resist this. What do you mean you're going to quit this wonderful position? But I think it's quite possible. You have to decide that you're going to have to maybe not have your four houses, your three houses. You're not going to have all your cable. Your children might not have all the cable TV they want. Maybe you'll cut your vacations, but you will, and it will take a year or two, during which you will probably be, dis, judging from talks you and I have had, it might take a year or two, uh, during which you're a little disoriented, as you sort of realize all of your time is yours now. You are your employer. And really, what are the things I say to the person you mentioned at our age who has this opportunity is to either have another career or downsize or just quit their job and live on less. One of the things I say to them is at this stage, the only failure could be imagination. The imagination to conceive of having, your, as we were just talking about, having your goods delivered from Amazon instead of driving around to the mall. The freedom to do things that look, as, as John Lennon said, the freedom to watch the wheels roll on and you have to learn how to tolerate. Your friends saying, as John Lennon said, people say I'm crazy, but he likes to sit and watch the wheels go round. Which for, in my case, means I like to I love to read. I read, I'm sure, four or five hours a day. And of course, I work in the market. 
you have to be imaginative. You can't just say, well, uh, as they used to say at age 65, well, time to fold in the tent and lay on the couch, wait for the grandchildren to visit me. But again, you have to be uh, imaginative. You have to allow yourself to experiment. And you have to tolerate people saying, you're lazy. You know, you could do so much more. One of the things I find, every single day I am throwing out mental baggage by which I mean habits that were extremely valuable and useful to me. I used to work 12 plus hours a day. I need to cut it back to four. My judgment in the market starts to deteriorate if I do too much in the market. My judgment deteriorates. Every day I'm throwing things off the ship. I don't need this habit anymore. I can afford that. I don't have to be saving. I still notice it in the supermarket. I always uh, compare the unit pricing. This can of tomatoes versus that can. Oh, this is 0.04 cents less. These were great habits when I was very poor and a student for 15 years, whatever it was. These were great habits when I had no money. They're just ways to drive yourself crazy now, but I still find myself doing them. Now, unfortunately, some people get to earlier stages at 50 or so, and they, quote, hit the wall. They find that the plan they made in their teens or 20s, or the lack of plan, has hit the wall. It is not worked out. They decided to start a, a service of selling ice to people who needed it for their refrigerators, say in the 20s or whenever, you know, and oops, no one has ice deliveries anymore. So there's people who may put their ladder against a wall, they climb to the top of the ladder, and then they find, oops, put my ladder against the wrong wall. They go the way of blockbuster video. That's right. I'm going to make my career rising in the ranks of blockbuster video. That's right. And they don't look at the numbers that say their income or their savings are declining. They don't listen to people who are saying to them, I don't think VHS is going to be around too much longer. They don't listen. They say, I know that this is going to work with perseverance and will. And they get to 40 or 50 and oops, it takes a harsh slam in the head. Those clients who come in, one has to do bold intervention to get them to understand that this might be their last chance to start any kind of financial planning so that when you get to 60, 70, you're not in, let's say, dire straits. You're not working at Starbucks. I don't mean to be mean. I've noticed over five, 10 years, one of my economic soft indicators that I see older and older people working as box boys in the market, Starbucks as baristas. And I assume that these are the people whose financial plans hit the wall and they didn't have a backup. But you know, that's no fault of many of them. Actually, we were never taught, and you and I are about the same age, we were never taught in, at least I wasn't in mm-hmm. elementary school and middle school or even high school, how to deal with a changing mm-hmm. business environment over a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Many of us, not me, worked for the corporation, more or less, for lack of a better word, for many years, had their 401k and they were laid off in their 40s mm-hmm. and late 50s. And those funds were depleted and they never had the mechanism, the mechanics of making a career adjustment. Well, I know for myself, I was never one who was able to do that sort of job, work for somebody for 10, 20, 15 years or five years. So this sort of lifestyle is all I've ever done. So I'm not making an adjustment. I'm constantly evolving from Mm -hmm. when I was a child. Mm -hmm. I call it the artistic gestalt. There's a little bit of art involved in creating a lifestyle that's prosperous and also that allows you the time to be lazy, at least in the Mm -hmm. eyes of others. (laughs) I don't call it lazy. Quote, unquote, lazy. Well, yeah, and I can own that periodically. But while I'm sitting around watching the wheels turn, I'm conceiving of things I can possibly do. You're talking about probably most of the American culture. Well, you're 
absolutely right. I mean, it is a disgrace that there isn't, I don't know if anything has changed recently, but to my knowledge, you're right, it's none of their fault. The 60-year-old who has to take the job is at minimum wage. No, 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 this is not his quote-unquote fault. And you're right, you're absolutely right. It is a disgrace that there isn't a single finance class taught in K-1 through 12. Bless him, Warren Buffett has started in the last few years cartoon TV shows for children on learning about finance and investing. When I see children, that almost always means I'm seeing their parents simultaneously or with them. As a psychologist? Yes, as a psychologist. When I bring books for children, which I do a lot, and I bring a finance book for a three-year-old on savings. There's actually about 12, 16 decent books on finance for ages three through 18. It's even one book on the Federal Reserve for children, believe it or not. I get the parents' permission first, and I explain what I'm doing. I have had no trouble teaching finance to a two-year-old. No trouble. That's unheard of. How do you do that? Well, I'll give you one example, a sort of goddaughter of mine. This is not a psychology client, but I'll give you the most glaring example. In my home, I have a penny pot, a pot in which one puts pennies, saves them, and then, and this was the pot that my grandmother used to teach me savings. There's a two-year-old who comes over with her parents, and she goes right to the penny pot, and we just sit and look at the coin. Well, how much is a quarter? And would you like a dime or ten or ten pennies? Which, by the way, three-year-olds always take the ten pennies. It's called lack of formal operations. And when I see her in the park or at the grocery store, she yells out, penny pot. She loves to do that. In fact, her birthday's coming up, so I was thinking of buying her one. So you start with simple things like putting pennies into a pot and then watching them come out the bottom, throwing all my box of coins on the floor for me to pick up after she leaves. And in terms of clients, you bring books and you read them. If they have a birthday, I frequently give children gifts on their birthday. I might buy them a cash register, a toy cash register at the age of six or seven. They love it. If they are approaching teens, I talk to them and their parents about little jobs they could do during the summer, car washes, mowing lawns, the old traditional stuff helping clean something out for somebody. Maybe a neighbor needs something done. I think it's a myth. Oh, you'll scar the children talking about finance. This baloney. Children want to be adults like crazy. They want to be adults so bad. The funny thing is they don't know how, so they have to tolerate parents and their rules. But they're just thrilled to be adults. When a child puts on a Batman cape or a Michael Jordan shirt at the age of 6, 3, 10, what do you think they're doing? They're practicing to be adults, but they're using the only role models that are often available, the ones that come through the entertainment industry. As a psychologist, I just provide them with a broader range of models. This is a picture of Warren Buffett. He's the richest man in the world. Do you know how he started? He started by delivering newspapers. Oh, and they're thrilled at this idea. I've never had any resistance from my children in teaching finance. The parents often think, well, they're not going to learn this, but they, they learn otherwise. All right. Well, they get to visit with Dr. Stephen Goldstein occasionally, these young children. But the rest of the time, they're being bombarded with entertainment and, and commercials and signs all over on buildings uh, proclaiming, uh, buy my stuff. Yeah. Don't you want to buy my stuff? You yeah. need to have my stuff. Yeah. And that is a large part of our culture, it, obtaining and spending culture. There's nothing about saving that's propagated in the media, more or less. And that's what you're combating. And that's one of the downfalls of the society which we live in, which I happen to like the fact that whatever we can conceive of, we can accomplish. And I like to buy mm -hmm. stuff myself, stuff mm -hmm. that usually mm -hmm. serves my creative interest or my business interest. How do you combat that right. in the young? Great, great question. Well, it must be combated. It's not an option. My thinking has evolved quite a bit. I'm not lukewarm on this. I think that, yes, I'm not a monk. I, I like to buy things. I like to have things that entertain me and so forth. But 
We have to remember that a child's nervous system isn't finished forming until about 25, okay? If I'm 50, I can make a rational choice about, is this glass of scotch good for me or bad for me? Is a moderation good? Yeah. I can make those decisions. That's not a decision a 10-year-old can make, and that's not a decision a 16-year-old. They want to fit in. They want social approval. So they'll basically just do what the environment is telling. And if they can find a way to do it to piss off their parents, oh, all the better. I want to be clear. I think that for children, God bless the country, the entertainment, if you're selective about what you use as an adult, good, fine. There's a lot of terrific stuff on HBO that didn't used to be there. But I think that the entertainment culture is ubiquitous in this country. And I think that for young people, zero to 25, it is poison. So we're doomed. No. The responsibility, more than any time before, including even the 50s, when I was raised, and I guess you were raised, it all falls on the parents. The community isn't going to do it anymore. It is the parents' responsibility to be the gatekeepers for how much of that stimulation is part of the child's world. And when the child does choose that stimulation, let's say an hour-long cartoon show at the end of the day. And I think parents should sit with the children and talk about them with the cartoons so that they're not just spaced out, zoning out, hypnotized, etc. If you're a parent, you can't find things to teach your child. You shouldn't have really had children. And I often tell parents, if you can't outwit a three-year-old, you're in the wrong game. But how do we, as a society, teach us, ourselves, our children... I have a daughter in her mid-30s. How do you teach people in that age category how to be good parents? An awful lot of the books on parenting are poor. I have a list of my favorite six or 12. I assign reading. Uh, I have my favorite books to assign. I sometimes buy the parents the book as a gift. I mean, when a parent comes in with a child, it's not because the child said, I'm having anxiety and angst about the world condition. I'd like to see a therapist. I don't think that's ever happened to a three-year-old. So why do parents bring in a child? Well, it's simple. They are at their rope's end. They are exasperated. And believe me, they don't come in at the first sign of trouble. They come in when they are completely wiped out with the last few years of behavior. It's not difficult, actually, to point out that they're exhausted and they can't keep going like this because when the child is bigger... They're not going to be able to put their hands on the child's shoulders, pick them up, and move them to another room. They're going to be bigger, and the child, the late teen child, can hit them, can push them down, can punch them, can simply walk out. So you better do these things now because it's going to just get worse. If you think this is bad, wait till they're 17. There's also more trouble they can get into, of course, because there's more influences. And you have to tell parents, parents, you know, you have to say, uh, you need to know that parenting is essentially a 24-7 game. There used to be a concept, I think, in the 60s that you could be a parent and just, if you were really busy, you could just set aside 30 minutes or 60 minutes of, quote, quality time. It's baloney. I saw Robert Reich, the former Secretary of uh, Labor, he was saying that the quality time concept is nonsense. And his wonderful metaphor was, children are like clams. They open up at any time. You have to be there to catch them when they're open to ideas and influence. Miss the time, and you can't come back after being away at work for three weeks or a week or three days and say, you know, I heard you were upset about the bully at school a few days ago. You want to tell me about that? By that time, uh, 12, 15 years is, uh, it's okay. Are you bothered? No. Well, what happened to them? Nothing, nothing, no. But if you catch them when the clam opens up, oh boy, and it's all right there. It's 24-7, but that doesn't mean you're working 24-7. That means you are, as Obama often uses the words, uh, you're always watching for the learning opportunity, the teaching opportunity. And they may come once a week, they may come once a day. You know, most, what psychologists know is that 
80% or more of what a child learns is from simply modeling. The best way to be a parent is, uh, there's a lot of technique, of course, but the best way is to start by just being the sort of person you want your child to grow into. Children are magnificent imitators. Just be the sort of person you think they should grow into. If you're drinking beer every night, what do you think they're going to do? If they see you reading books all the time, what do you think they're going to do? Well, there must be something good in those books. If you don't read books and you say to them, oh, reading books is so important, and they don't see you doing it, you're asking for trouble. Children, I often say, are giant satellite dishes. They're picking everything up, everything. All of the universe is everything around them. They're still building the software to decipher it. They have all this code, but they don't know how to decipher it. That's the parent's job, to install the software that deciphers the code. So when the child is melting down, having a temper tantrum, that's because the stimulation from the satellite dish has gotten way too much. They don't have anywhere near the software to interpret. And you have to take them aside, gently hold them and explain this is why this happened. And you have to install the software step by step by step. To get back to your question, to incentivize parents, there's only a few joys. There's a, lim- there's a finite number of joys with parenting. A lot of it is just extremely hard and taxing. It ends up just boring. The same question repeated over time, over and over and over and over. Why, 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 why? The number of joys in parenting are finite. And if you want to truly enjoy those for the length of your life, not just from now till 20, and then they go off to the other part of the world, you hear them from them once a year, once 10 years. If you want to truly enjoy the finite number of joys in parenting. You have to uh, do your work now. Or when they're 18, 20, you'll meet with them, you'll sit on the sofa, everyone will sit on the sofa and look at the TV. And that'll be their visit to you. They'll look at their watch, just anxious to leave after the football game is over. This isn't my idea of the joy of parenting. My idea of the joy of parenting is that uh, you're having wonderful conversations with them at the when they're 40, so forth. That's not going to happen. If you don't show them the, what you have to offer. You've often pointed out in the short time we've known each other, I'll say, well, we didn't do much uh, here. And then you'll say, well, we had a good conversation. What a surprise that you're running a podcast. That's right. I was watching a program and people said, we're not sure that reading is going to continue to be with the internet and the sound bites and the Twitters. And some authors on, on C-SPAN, which nobody watches but me, were saying that reading, uh, we're not sure reading is gonna, isn't going to die out. I would add conversation. If you think carefully, how many people do you enjoy sitting and talking with for one, two, three hours? Sometimes they just don't have anything to say. Sometimes they're inhibited about saying it. Anyway, in Freud's age, talking about sex earned you the scarlet A. Now, it's that's just not true. Now, I think the taboo is talking about finance. Even with a good friend, try saying, how are you doing financially? What's your net worth? What is your financial planning? That's not a question that I feel comfortable hearing from anybody, that's right. really. When I they mean, ask you. Yes, exactly. It's nobody's right. business, is it? Well, if that's how you feel, that's legitimate. But one of the big surprises for me as a clinician was when clients come in, one of the first things I do is to figure out what developmental stage they're at, which means what developmental stage are they stuck so that I can get them unstuck and move forward and turn the crisis into an opportunity, which is what you began the podcast talking about when you're 60 and how do you... I actually, at one point, when I started Finance 20, I tried to incorporate finance into my clinical evaluation, which means the first session you meet a patient, a client, and almost 100% responded to the question. They recoiled. They didn't think. They assumed that my motives for asking were venal and self-serving. In other words, I was looking to get my hand in their wallet. And I get that. I understand. It happens a lot. It's the way everything works. Right. I was wrong. They were right. I was naive. And I would be smart enough 
to back off immediately, but I would come back to it in roundabout ways. Without getting detailed about the numbers, I would ask, well, what are you hoping to do when you're 60? I would go roundabout. Do you think they're really going to promote you? If you remember Death of a Salesman. The tragedy of Willie Loman. This is my favorite play. I'm sure that influences why I'm here today. Wow. One of the tragedies of Willie Loman, and I could talk about Death of a Salesman for days, but one of the tragedies is that in that scene where he goes to visit the son of the boss who he worked for for his entire life, one of the tragedies is that he was a salesman for that company for his entire life. And he really believed that when he got to old age, they would do the right thing and give him a kind of corner desk to make it to retirement. They would let him stop being on the road, living, selling on the road and have a corner desk, something easy. Instead, they fired him because why? He had failed to grow as a salesman. He had failed to move with the industry. So all of his skills were outdated. They didn't need him anymore, and so they fired him. So if a client says, I just know that my company is going to reward me for filling in the same hole for 40 years and letting my skills wither. No, I don't know how to use the internet, but I don't think they mind that. If they think that they're going to walk in like Willie Loman and get that promotion that used to happen, you know, in this country in the 20s, the gold, remember the gold watch? You know, you'd stay until 65, then you'd get a dinner and they'd give you the gold watch. You know anybody who's gotten that lately? You got to buy your own gold watch. <laughs> That's right. That's right. One of the things I like to say to people, sometimes they say, uh, well, you should buy this or that stock. Well, I found a stock I really like. I have really intelligent investors. Metrics, sure. Yeah. They give me good ideas. But sometimes if they say it more than once or twice, admittedly, I get a little bored and annoyed. And I say, well, I tell you what, if I buy this and it goes bust, will you hold a benefit to raise money for the rest of my life, my retirement? That ends the conversation pretty fast. I remember seeing that, remember Lyle Alzado yeah, yeah. of the Oakland Raiders, sure. or then the LA Raiders, I think he was still in the team. But Lyle Alzado, he was clearly, I think, his, uh, he was brain damaged at the end. And they held a benefit for him to get him through the last years because it was so clearly messed up. He had dementia or traumatic brain syndrome of some sort. But they held a benefit, I think the Raiders did. No one's going to do that for me. No one's going to do that for you. And I don't think anyone's going to be doing that for 99% of the people listening. Uh, the interesting thing about the economy now is we're all free agents now. Remember when Kurt Flood declared himself a free agent and the case went to the Supreme Court and his case set the precedent that you could become a free agent. A lot of people were shocked and appalled. Oh, baseball will be ruined, blah, blah, blah. Whatever you think of the decision that it changed the game forever. My view is that it also changed how we think about working for a living, which is my view is that from that moment on, it wasn't just in baseball. We are all free agents. When I used to go for job interviews and I talked to young people that when they go for a job interview, they should always go understanding in the back of their mind, not openly. They're being interviewed, but they are also interviewing their potential employer to see if the employer is worthwhile working for. Speaking of how you teach finance, that's one of the things that I say to 20-year-olds. You are what you eat. You are who you surround yourself with. You bet. What is the science, and I put that in quotation marks, behind like-minded individuals, meeting like-minded individuals and interacting with folks that are going to bring you up instead of bringing you down for the purpose of mm -hmm. personal happiness and abundance financially? Great question. You're right. If you are living in a sewer, you'll have rats as friends. Remember Ed Norton yeah, on the Honeymooners? Ed Norton worked in the sewer all day. That means he comes home with a little bit of stink on him. Whatever job you pick, you will come home with a little bit of that smell on you. 
So if you worked with horrible people who you can't stand, don't pretend that you can come home, have a drink, and it's all washed off. It's, it's wearing you down. So the negative is certainly, I, I think, obvious. And it's easy to have a surrounding that is degrading you by the day. By removing over the course of time those instances or individuals as much as possible mm-hmm. that, that might provide some sort of, as you put it, stink at the end of the day. That's right. That's right. It's pretty blunt. If I really No, if I spend an hour and a half with my, with a very good friend just talking on the phone about books we've read, which I do, that's my idea of a wonderful way to use my time. I think that when you get older, creating your environment so that it is conducive to your best self, your best life, is uh, sometimes you can't, of course. But if you have the option, there's nothing more important. I will give you the most extreme example I've ever heard. Charlie Munger, the partner of Berkshire Hathaway, he bought the whole office building in which he has an office so that he chooses who all of the renters are. So he doesn't even have to spend time in the elevator or at the water cooler with anybody he doesn't want to talk to. Now talk about going back to creativity and imagination. That's the most imaginative. None of us, few of us have the means to do that, of course. But we do have the means to say, which party will I go to? Which friends do I want to talk to? Which groups do I want to belong to? Whose nonsense do I want to listen to for the fourth time? You know, when you work in organizations, which I did for virtually all my life, you have to get along. It's a damn good idea to get along, however good or bad I was at it. And now I pay as much attention to whether they get along with me and whether they make my day richer or poorer. It's not being selfish. I mean, I've been accused of being selfish when doing exactly that. Well, it is selfish, but I think it's selfishness in the service of mental health. There's all kinds of selfishness. If one has, a has let's say, uh cancer, God forbid, you have to be selfish in order to you know, undergo treatment. You have to neglect certain things. So there's all kinds of selfishness, and uh, I think it depends on what it's in the service of. Lawrence Olivier once said that actors have to be the most selfish people in the world. What he meant by that was all of our attention has to be to ourself, nobody else, which meant the girlfriends and women were just accoutrements <laughs> yeah that's right they were ornaments the woman was there to tell them how good they looked how good that suit looked on them and how good they were in, in the play the exactly base. you know it's amazing there are people who talk and they never say well so how are you what are you doing it's very simple but Dale Carnegie 101 Dale Carnegie I assigned to every teenager every teenager it works it is the best pop psych book ever written and when you understand that it's a hundred years old and it's still in my opinion the best pop psych book ever written. I don't think you should have an adolescence without reading that book. It's the perfect socialization book. It's about listening. It's about paying attention. Uh And actually, it's about kissing a little A. That's right. James Carville once said, he was impatient with these people who said, oh, this candidate is just an ass kisser. Oh, I don't like him. And he would think, what are they talking about? He said, if you're going to run for politics, or for that matter, in most of adult life, you might as well just bend over (laughs) and stay in that position you're going to be kissing ass the whole campaign to become president. Uh, what are they talking about? Uh, who goes through an adult life not having to kiss somebody's behind? There's no such thing. But it, there's meaningful, you know. heartfelt ass kissing that really is, is, is <laughs> what's going to benefit everybody. Correct? <laughs> <laughs> I've never said that out loud as they, before, as they used or to, even thought it. <laughs> as I forget who said this. Sincerity is easy once you've learned how to fake it. And, well, that's uh, the one thing I found about Dale Carnegie. There were quite a few bullet points mm-hmm. toward the road to success mm-hmm. that if you just do it, it becomes part of who you are naturally and you wind up enjoying it anyway. That's right. Any career you pick is going to have 
months, years, days of stagnation, problems, frustration, failure. Just speaking for myself, the only way I can imagine getting through that without resorting to, you know, to drink is if you enjoy what you're doing regardless of yesterday's failure. If you just enjoy the substance of what you're doing, period. I don't mean to set this aside as a virtue, but I didn't know what my paycheck was for my first job as a psychologist for quite some time. I didn't want to know and I didn't know and I didn't care. I was quite thrilled to be doing this and that was just fine with me. Even now I charge far below community standards as a psychologist and also as a financial manager. I charge just 1%, period. No additional fees, no nothing. The only way I really make money is if they make money so that the 1% of their assets becomes more and more. Can you do in four hours a day what you used to be able to do in 15 hours and make just as much money, if not more? In this market, where I believe, in my opinion, that we're in the grips of a failed monetary policy, and certainly fiscal policy. Yes, because if you think that there are wonderful bargains just lying around after eight years of an overvalued, overstimulated market, if you think there's great bargains lying around, I have a bridge to sell you. All right, so there have been some adjustments, and maybe three or four years ago, it might have been more lucrative as a trader, as an investor, mm-hmm. than it is today. Let's let's say that 2011 was a nice year. The year 2000 was a nice year. Uh, 1997 might have been a good year. Mm-hmm. I'm just picking years. We all know what the bad ones were. When the blood runs in the street. My view, the way I work, I really have my 100 to 300 best companies, best ideas. And how are you finding them? Oh, that's just fundamental work. Just turning over rocks, reading my brains out, reading, 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 and then when I'm done, reading some more. But no more than 150 or so, right? My best ideas, yes, 100, my best. But I also have others that I look at. Sometimes I look at a company just because uh, it's interesting, but I wouldn't buy it. Is there a software that brings these metrics to you? Is there a specific program or is it just your knowledge? There aren't any formulas. No, there's no software. I'm just a fundamentalist. You just stick your ass in the chair and you read. That's it. And that means you look at the SEC filings. I have a spreadsheet. You do the numbers. You figure out what the company is worth. You figure out its intrinsic value, which means what it will be worth in 10 years. And if the price is below that now, uh, I buy it if it's reasonable and other things. Uh, You can look ahead 10 years. To what I think it's worth? Yeah. How does the study of psychology factor into Mm -hmm. financial planning? Well, as everyone knows, Richard Thaler founded Behavioral Finance uh, some time ago, and that's now a relatively popular field. So it's official that the psychology of misjudgments is a legitimate target of economic study. But yes, I came to it before Richard Thaler. He won the Nobel Prize, I believe. But I came to it, obviously, from a different direction, being a psychologist. So let me answer it that way. Let me answer it from my own perspective, not from what we now have as research. If you don't understand your own temperament, you have no business in the market. If you don't understand what your mistakes are, what your problems are, if you can't look at your own mistakes honestly, you really shouldn't do it. I'm very influenced by, I think, one of the best papers ever written by Charlie Munger on the 21 or 22 most common misjudgments, psychological misjudgments in investing. Can we pick one or two? Yeah, bias, cognitive biases, biases of learning, biases of chemical, like you've put too many chemicals in your brain to be able to think clearly. 22 misjudgments. And a friend of mine, a colleague, he can look at any uh, company or he can look at an investment decision to say, oh, that's the bias of confirmation bias, which means all these people are buying it. Oh, no, which is 
I like this stock, so I'm going to listen to this guru, and if he says it's good, that means I'm right. No, it doesn't mean you're right. Temperament and learning and reading that article about uh, the 22 most common misjudgments that occur, and I think it's dead on. I think that if you do your homework and you're a fundamental investor, looking at the intrinsic value of a company, what is it worth, and you're refusing to pay more than it's worth, and if you're extremely patient, then you know people keep pointing out about Berkshire Hathaway. Every year for five decades, they defeat the random walk theory of investing, which says that it's a crapshoot, basically, which says that you can just buy an index fund and nobody can outperform the market. Well, every year for 50 years, Berkshire Hathaway has proven differently. Dr. Stephen Goldstein, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. It's been a real pleasure. Been more than a pleasure. What is the best way to reach you? 323-653-4206. I've been speaking with psychologist and financial planner, Dr. Stephen Goldstein. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 